All right, flip over in your Bibles and let us return again and look at Exodus chapter 24. We are here in the text and we are working our way right through uh, this book, exposition series by series, sometimes line by line as it's come as we were going through the Ten Commandments one at a time. Uh, But there's a transition here as we turn in chapter 24. As we turn the page, we have no longer are we getting in all the details about the laws, uh, that in a way we're turning the page on that, and the story picks up again, at least for a moment. And it's a story of God being worshipped by His people in a particular uh, intimate and glorious manifestation of Himself. Uh, really, you have the whole people of Israel, but there's a select few that are called to come up to the mountain and to come see God even. And it's an incredible thing. And, and maybe you know some, you know, to put it in our everyday kind of life, maybe you know something about this in a similar way. Have you ever uh, gotten tickets to a concert, but you got VIP passes? You know, you get to go backstage, you get to go interact maybe with the performers and this kind of thing. Or you've been at, say, um, a VCU basketball game. You have courtside seats that you can only get to if you have the special lanyards, this kind of thing. Maybe you've been there, you have special access that's been granted to you that not everybody gets. Well, I can say the, the one time that sticks out really in my mind of this in my own life is the best day at Disney World you could ever have. I'll just put it this way. So I had been with my family. We were in at Disney World in Orlando in the early summer, so it was super hot. We got there when it opened, of course, because you paid good money for this. I'm going to get it all out. And uh, you have an app now that you can use to see the wait times. You know, when I was a kid at parks, you didn't have this. You had to run over there and just see that it's full. Well, you could pull up on the app, and the new ride, the Seven Dwarves Mine Train that we hadn't ridden, um, it was new that year, and the line was always, as you might imagine, super long. So we're like, well, forget it. We're not going to wait in line for this. So as we were walking out of the park, because it's closing, uh, we did the jungle cruise real quick on the way out, because it was towards the the exit. And my brother-in-law, thanks to him, he made like a passing comment to one of the workers there. Hey, we didn't get to do the new ride. We really wanted to. And the worker was like, well, you might be able to squeeze it in if you ran over there right now. And we're like, we're too exhausted uh, my kids were younger. He had very little kids. We're like, we've been here all day. Forget it. But as we came off the Jungle Cruise, this worker came by that had my brother-in-law had talked to, and he had these like 10 or 12, I can't remember how many were in our party, lanyards, these bright green lanyards that said, after hours. We're like, what is this? They're like, you didn't get to ride the ride. Well, you get to stay. It's going to close. Everybody's going to leave. But all of you with the green lanyards, you get to stay till 2 a.m. And at first we're like, no, (laughs) we're exhausted. (laughs) Well, at least go ride the ride. So we're like, okay. At the time, Disney was piloting this kind of after hours feature of how to experience their parks. And we're like, okay, I guess we'll go do this ride. It's on the other end of the park. So we go over there and sure enough, we're like going against stream. Everybody's walking toward the exit and we're walking to the depths of the park. So we're trying to fish through, keep hands on all of our kids. And we get there. And of course, because there's only a few people who have these green lanyards, there's no line. So we ride it and we ride it again. And then we're like, I guess we should go home. But as we come out of the ride, there's all of these folks with these uh, snack carts, and they are handing out as much as you want, waters, sodas, ice cream, to give you the sugar rush to make it to 2 a.m., which is exactly what we did. I mean, get this. This is the best way to do Disney. No people, no hot sun, no lines, 
All the rides were open, and you can go as much as you want, all because we had these special access passes. Uh, That is the best way to do a theme park, I will say. Well, as we turn here now to Exodus, uh, there's a few people here who have special access uh, that most don't have, and they are ready to embark on the thrill ride of their lives, far better than the seven dwarves mine train, right? They are going to go up and meet God, is what this, quote, ride is. Uh, They have passed all the security checkpoints. They've been authorized for this to come up and meet God up close. Because get this, despite all of the warnings that we've seen, remember they set up boundaries and God told the people, don't go up past the boundaries, it's dangerous. And then when they saw God, as he spoke the Ten Commandments, there was the, the thunder and the lightning. It was like a volcano was exploding over them. It was very threatening. God's a consuming fire. But despite all of those signs of his glory, do you know this? He wants to have fellowship with his people. He wants them to know him, and he wants to know you intimately, personally, despite all of that. And the astonishing thing is now, not only does he want to know his people, but the astonishing thing is now, this side of Christ and the cross, that kind of access, it's not limited to a select few. Rather, that access has been blown wide open to all, or really better said, to any who will respond to the gospel call and trust in Christ. You get access. You get to come by faith to the very presence of God in fellowship. But so the question to us is, have you done this in the first? Have you come and trust Christ that you might have fellowship with God? And, I mean, we're speaking to the church here. We're assuming most have. You've trusted Christ. But are you cultivating that? Are you making use of your special access? Or, like many times, I experience this. I know many in this room are experiencing it probably right now. You come to gather with God's people, but God feels very far away from you. He feels very distant this morning. How can I come to know this God? Well, in Exodus 24, and and for time, we're just going to look at those first 11 verses this morning. It, It provides not a formula, like things to tick through, so to speak, but a paradigm, it provides a pattern for what a growing relationship with God must look like. It's going to look like these things. And so we're going to take these five steps to enjoy, cultivate a fellowship, a relationship with God. And we'll find them fall out of the text from us here in Exodus 24. And the first step that we must take is this, we must respond to his invitation. Verses one and two. And in one sense, The pre-step, or the first first step, is actually a step that you can't take. It's a step God has to take. He has to put out the invitation. But when he does, you must respond to that call. That's not an invitation you can turn down. You can't afford to. Because that's what we see, this very thing, as this text opens in chapter 24, is an invitation comes from God for some to come up and see him and worship him. And we commented on this, but this is really a transition here that happens in chapter 24, because since, believe it or not, May, we've been looking at the laws of God. (laughs) And for most of the summer, we took each of the Ten Commandments first. Those were those laws spoken directly by God to the people. We took each one of those in turn. And then after that, we looked at chapters 21 through 23, the rules they're called here. 
These are the particulars. You got the 10 overarching principles, but then how do those get lived out in Israel's everyday life? Well, that's what chapters 21 through 23 were about. So we've been looking at those, even those laws over the past six weeks. Well, now the page turns, the story picks back up again. And as it does, there's one more direct command given, and it's come up and worship me. So let's look at verse 1 of Exodus 24. Then he, that is God, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So we notice a couple things right away. First, the main command, they are to come up further up the mountain and then not just, you know, to get a better view, not just because it's a nice hike, they are to come there to worship. They are to come there and the notion of this word for worship is they need to come up and get flat on their face before God. They need to come and bow before God and His greatness. But also right away what we see is that this is a qualified coming up. This is a qualified getting closer to God. This is not just free reign. In the first place, not everybody of Israel is invited to go further up the mountain. Actually, it's only this few, Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and then another chosen select 70 elders from the tribe of Israel. I mean, you want to talk about among the 2 million plus Israelites, you want to talk about the fear of missing out, well, here it is. Most don't get an invitation to this. You have these special Israelite VIPs. They got special backstage passes with God to go meet him. Now, why can't everybody come up the mountain? Well, just very practically, I don't think you could really get two million people up that mountain with God. Uh, There's not enough room to get to the mountaintop, so to speak. It's very practically limiting. And so we understand that these 70 elders, that some were taken from each tribe. So what do you have? You have your elder representative going before you to the presence of God. So not every Israelite can go up the mountain, but every Israelite would have a rep there representing them before God. But also you notice, even at the end of verse 1, even though of the 74 special invites, 73 of those 74 can only go up so close. Do you notice at the end of verse 1, all of you come up and all of you worship, but then he notes at the very end what? From afar. They can only get so close. They can get closer than most, but they can't get so close. There's only one that can get so close. We read on in verse 2. Moses alone shall come up near, close, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. And so we start to have a hint here that it's not merely the venue's capacity that has limited who all can come up the mountain. There's something about God that is inherently limiting, or maybe it is something about them. You have a holy God and you have a not holy people. How does this work to get them together? When you do, it's explosive, it's dangerous, as actually the book of Exodus will even tell us more about as things come in. Getting close to this God, there's something about Him or something about us that's inherently limiting and can actually be very dangerous. So with that in mind, this is what, here's the incredible thing that's pictured for us here. In Christ, 
Everyone in Christ is called up close. Is called up near. Is called up to get very close to God. Through Christ and His cross, everyone is invited if you will just come and receive the invitation. The ticket's already been purchased. The special lanyard's given out. Just grab the lanyard and go. And this is astonishing even as we'll see unpacked for us in the coming weeks, Lord willing, with the whole Israelite system of worship with the tabernacle, not everybody in Israel could get close to God. Most of them could never go into the tabernacle or the temple to see God. Only the priest could do that. And even among the priests, there was only one priest, the high priest, who could actually go behind the veil to go where God's presence particularly dwelt among Israel. And he could only go, as you probably know, once a year. And he had to go with smoke, and he had to go with blood. That's it. And the astonishing thing is now, because of Christ, all get to go into the very presence of God, and with bold assurance. Here's the word from Hebrews chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, he says, let us draw near to God with a true heart, but note, in full assurance of faith. This is incredible. This is what is opened for us now because of Jesus. His death is so powerful, so pleasing, so effective. That sinner though you are, whatever your past is and has been, through Jesus, you can get close to the holiness of God. You can have an actual relationship with Him. You can know Him. He can know you. But that's only through Jesus Christ. Only through His death. Only by what He has done. So friend, know this. If this morning you are apart from Christ... There's no special invitation coming besides this one. There's no other way to get access. There's no other door to come through. It's not your brilliance. It's not your insight into his creation. It's not your good morals or that you're a good dad or whatever it is. The only way in is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Respond and take his invitation. Now, again talking to the church now. We are those who have believed in Christ. We've professed faith. So you have been reconciled. That's a reality because of Christ. But are you cultivating that relationship in reality? We were talking in the Hebrews class on Wednesday night. You know, it's this this thing. I'm married to Aaron, my wife, and that doesn't change even when I'm a jerk. Unfortunately, in one sense, you might say for her, right? But it doesn't change because we have this covenant. We have this commitment. We are together, but I don't get to enjoy that fellowship if I'm being a jerk, if I'm being unfaithful, or if I'm not being attentive. Well, many of us, our Christian life is like that. We're banking on the object of reality of the cross, but then we never cultivate that relationship with Him. And are you, are you surprised He feels distant then? It's like you've purchased an annual pass. You ever done this? Purchase one of these annual passes to a theme park, you know, Bush Gardens or the Science Museum downtown, uh, because it, they sold it to you like, well, if you go twice, it pays for itself. And you're like, that sounds like a waste of money, but I did it anyway. So you have this annual pass, but then you never go. You have all the access you want, 
but you never bother showing up. Well, Jesus has purchased passage for you, not annually, once a year, but moment by moment to get the grace and help you need in your time of need. Have you neglected access to that kind of fellowship with God? Have you let your prayer slide? Have you neglected to, to sit at his feet, to hear his word for your very soul? Again, he's purchased that kind of access into the presence of God. Have you even been using your tickets, so to speak? And if not, do you see what you've been missing? You've got to respond to his invitation. He's calling you in even now. Second, regard highly his word. See this in the first part of verse 3. We're just struck in this passage by the repetition and so then the importance of the word of God. If we're going to have a close relationship with God, it comes by a high regard, a rapt attention to what God has said to his book. And we see that captured here. Because the first thing that happens as Moses comes back down the mountain after meeting with God, he proclaims God's word and God's law to God's people. Look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. What's going on here? So if you remember back to chapter 19 and 20, God met with Israel at Mount Sinai. And then God spoke the Ten Commandments to them. And they got freaked out, frankly. And that was partly rightly so. They were supposed to fear God and His power, this consuming fire that thunders from the mountain. And so in replacement, they say, we can't keep talking with God because He might destroy us. Moses, you go up on our behalf. And so that's what Moses does. And that's where we get chapters 21 through 23. God relays to Moses the rest of these laws, all the rules that we hear about in verse 3. And so then, as he comes back down the mountain, that's where we're at in verse 3, he tells them all that God had told him, the Word of God. And as verse 3 goes on, we read that he tells them all the words of the Lord and all the rules, again, basically chapters 20 through 23 of Exodus, and then the people answer with one voice, and they say, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. They pledge their obedience. But it's, you notice in the text, they don't just move on. What happens next? Moses writes down, verse 4, all the words of the Lord. It wasn't enough to have these words passed down from generation to generation and have the risk of some like horrible game of telephone, right? Where the words get changed and adapted. No, these words are too important. This is a contract, really. Those words are too important to just take somebody's word for it. It has to be scribbled down. It has to be preserved, written. So it can be referred to again. It can be heard again, written down to be read again, verbatim, over and over. And actually, you see this in verse 4. Moses writes down all the words, and then he reads all those words right back to them. Look down to verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant, that's all that he just wrote down, and he read it in the hearing of the people. They just heard it in verse 3. Now he wrote it all down, and he says it all back to them. And notice that the people, they're not missing this. They're being attentive to every word. Notice, 
Every time they're hearing the law first recited and then read out to them, look at their devoted responses. Look at verse three again at the end. All the people answered with one voice and said, all the word that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Verse seven, we read again. He took the book of the dew and we will be obedient. And finally, as the covenant sealed with blood at the end, look what Moses proclaims in verse eight. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Don't you see? It's about the words, the captured, preserved, written words. This is how God relates to them. This is how a relationship with God works. He has his word. That's how you know him. Now, you know this. Sometimes us evangelicals, you know, those who have a high view of the word of God, we're chided for being too much of people of the book. No, you're not, you're not open to the spirit, they say. Maybe something like this. Or you're not smart enough to think for yourself. You're stuck in the past. You're stuck in this old book, bound to these old words. You know, maybe isn't God saying something new? But don't you see? God desired and wanted to communicate to his people, and that from the very beginning in an unchanging, unadapting word written. It's a word that doesn't need updating. You don't need to download the next version. It doesn't change because it doesn't need to. You know, some will go, oh, but that's so stagnant. No, these are the written down words of the living God. They, They are in that way sure. They are unchanging, unalterable words you can hear once, but then you can go back and read them again and read it again, and you can chew on it, you can memorize it, and you're never out of date when you've tethered yourself to his word. Understand, there's no way to know this God apart from his word. So two things. If you want to hear from God, you want to hear straight from God's mouth, then go to his written, inspired, the way Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, God-breathed word. Go to the book. It's straight from his mouth. And in that way, it is crystal clear what God meant and what he said. But second, and related to this, pulling off the themes in 2 Timothy 3, this word is all that you need to know. It alone is that unchanging tool of God to teach you, reprove you, correct you, and train you. And Paul goes on to say, to make you complete for every good work. You know what that means? That there is no good thing you need to know, no good work you need to do that the very word of God written is not sufficient to equip you for. There's not a new philosophy out there. There's not a new psychological drug that's going to put it all in place for you. There's not not some new discovery that's going to finally make you complete and ready to serve God. It's all preserved for you in that word. But is that your approach to his word? Or has it become stagnant to you? Lifeless. Well, might that be because you just haven't been tapping into it? 
You haven't experienced it. You're not even tasting it, not even trying to. Because understand, if it, seems life, if it seems lifeless, the Word of God, I mean, just even say that. If the Word of the living God seems lifeless, can you guess where the problem is? It's not in the book. Where is it? It's right here. It's our own heart. That's the problem. It's no fault in the Word. The fault's in our hearts. We need to beg God, open our hearts to see glorious things from your Word. Take away the blinders of sin and the deceit that so has warped my thinking and my mind. Show me Christ and His mercy and beg with God and get in the book until He changes you. But what's clear is you can't move beyond it. You can't go past the Word. That's not spiritual. We know God by this Word. Regard it highly. But related to this, we resolve to obey what we read. We resolve to respond to that word of God we've heard. That's what fellowship looks like. He speaks, we respond. And we mentioned this, but just moments ago in summary, as the whole covenant is being ratified, sealed, and delivered, here's what we read. They did it before, but we see it here. Look at verse 7 of Exodus 24. Again, Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And this is at least the second time they've heard it. And what's their response? They hear that word and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And they did the same thing in verse 3. All the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And actually, before they even heard all of the word of God, they said the same thing earlier in chapter 19. We're going to be obedient, God. We are committing ourselves to you. Why all the repetition? Why over and over and over again? It's underscoring the seriousness of what's happening here. They're not going into this relationship. That's what's being formed here, this covenant relationship. They're not going in uninformed. You know, like I often do. Speaking of updating things and downloading, you know, I get on my computer and there's a new update to my Apple machine, right? And so this, before I can download anything, this pop-up window comes up and it has a long fine print And you have to scroll quickly, is what I do, instantly, actually, all the way to the bottom. And I click this box that says, I've read and agreed to all the terms and conditions when I haven't read a word of it. That's not what God's doing with his people. He's reading out all the fine print. He's rehearsing with them all the details. And they tell God in response, we're in. Now, I want to ask you, Was that the right response for them? To hear the word of God, to hear God's law, and to say something like, all that God has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. I mean, because we know where this story goes. Or if you don't, let me remind you. They don't. (laughs) They don't obey. They're going to fail. They're going to disobey. And they're going to be punished for it, even driven out of the promised land they're really heading towards now and don't even yet have. 
I mean, you might think, and it's not unjust to think this, but you might say, well, how could they be so arrogant to say, we will obey? Shouldn't they have said something more humbly like, well, it sure sounds good, God, but I can't do this. Well, I know what you mean, and yes, they should be humble, but no, that wouldn't be the right response here. I know this because if you go, we don't have time to look at it, but in Deuteronomy 5, go check it out this afternoon, God commends them. He says, they've said right. And he says, oh, I wish they always had a heart to obey me. So it's the right idea to want to obey God. Because think of it like this. He's taken them out of slavery. He's redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt. He's already saved and delivered them. He's saying, I'm committing to you. Will you commit to me? And can you imagine with all that he's given you, you go, ah, nah. I'm not interested. Again, this is the covenant relationship being formed. It's like a marriage. So you get the bride and the groom up there. We'll put it this way. Let's say the bride goes first and she says, yes, I will be faithful to him in richer for poorer, sickness and in health all the days of my life, forsaking all others just for you. And then the husband's like, my turn with the vows? Nah, I don't want to be so committed to this gal. She's over the top. That'd be horrible, wouldn't it? It would be so ungrateful before God's great salvation to look at it and go, ah, I don't want to commit back to you even though you committed to me. Furthermore, to underscore that this actually is the right response, to want to obey God, to have that desire, understand that Christ calls us to know less than full obedience to Him, full devotion. That's why Jesus can say things like this. This is Mark. Come after me. What does He say? You're going to follow Jesus? You're going to follow me to heaven, so to speak? Let Him deny Himself. Take up His cross and follow me. And in case you've missed the figure of speech, He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. You understand, when He says, take up your cross... It's not your burden to bear. He's saying, you're going to come and die for me. That is, not literally be a martyr. As Luke puts it, he says it like this, take up your cross every day. You're going to die to your agenda. You're going to die to your desires. You're going to die to your plans. You're going to die to your goals, your aspirations, what you want to do, your assessments, and you're going to submit them all to God, to your Christ. In the new covenant, it's not like God demands less of you than he did before. The command still holds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. He has redeemed us in Christ. Only our commitment right back in full is worthy of it. But is that how you see it? Are you resolved with your whole life to obey Jesus? That he is your Lord your master, your boss, your director. He's not a wingman. He's not a friend on your side. He is your Lord. What he says goes. Because if he's not that, then don't assume he's actually your savior because you don't actually trust him. If you can't trust him to obey his word, you can't trust that he'd actually save you. They go together. Now, again, kind of back to the objection we could bring up before, you might say, but Rick, I don't obey him perfectly. 
Neither do I. And Israel certainly didn't, did they? And that's true. But even as God's setting up this relationship with his people, the solution comes right in the covenant, as we'll see here in a moment. The problem was for the following generations of Israelites, they thought this relationship with God rested on how well they obeyed. And they actually fooled themselves to thinking, God loves me because I obey so much. No, you need something far more than good intentions, good vibes, and a few good works to get with this God. You need blood. And again, even the old covenant provided for that. But sinners cannot have fellowship with God without blood. And as we turn back then to Exodus 24, that's what we see next. You're going to have a relationship with God. You have to rely upon his sacrifice. There's no other way. Verses 4 to 8 here. Because you've got to understand this right away. When we're confronted with this holy God and we're confronted with his righteous law, you have no right, you have no business trying to get close to his holy fire unless you come with blood. You have to rely on his sacrifice. So to go back to the text, that's what we see here. With God's word and law in one hand, the next thing Moses does with, the, with his hands, so to speak, is he sets up sacrifices. Look at verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we have this altar, and then we got these 12 pillars. These are like little models, and he's modeling what he's actually doing with them. He's modeling this relationship he's making between them and God. God standing for the altar and the pillars, it tells us, each one represents one of the tribes of Israel. And what's happening between them? What's being pictured? There's a bond being made. Again, this is like a covenant relationship, like marriage. The two are becoming one. But how is it happening? By blood. Because the first thing he's done, once he sets up the altar and the 12 pillars, there's sacrifices. Look at verse 5. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now, each of these types of offerings here, burnt offerings and peace offerings, they have their own particular significance, but for time, we're going to look at the main one, the burnt offerings. And to that, I want to turn with you in to the next book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. So go right in your Bibles, one book, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 1. And uh, as you might well know, if you've tried to do a Bible reading plan, you might have got bogged down a little bit in all of the details in Leviticus because it goes through all the kinds of sacrifices and so forth they have to do. Well, it starts off in chapter 1 with the very most prominent sacrifice, the most common one, which is this one of burnt offerings that we see mentioned in Exodus 24. And we're going to look at it here because it tells us something so prominent about our relationship with God, perhaps the most crucial thing about our relationship with God represented here by the how and why of burnt offerings. Because what we find in the burnt offering that becomes so clear in that sacrifice is that you have to have a substitute. You have to have a stand-in. You have to have someone take your place. It's about an offering of total devotion that gives its whole life. 
verse 3, he has to pick one of his flock to bring it to God. But then as he does, notice what the worshiper does next, verse 4. It says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him, note, to make atonement for him. By putting his hand on the animal's head in this ceremony, he's identifying with the animal, and the animal identifying with him. What he's saying is, this animal is going to stand in my place. It's going to be my substitute. It's going to take my place in this worship ceremony. He's commissioning it by putting his hand on it to take his place, to be a substitute of worship. And notice, if he can do that, if the lamb or the ox will take his place, what does it say is going to happen at the end of verse 4? This lamb or oxen will be able to make atonement, to be a blood covering that makes peace. You can even see it in the English, the at one mint. It's taking these two parties and bringing them in union one. But why does that happen? Because the animal dies in the man's place. Look at verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw it against the sides of the altar, which we saw in actually in Exodus 24. But understand, often the hand would still be on the bull or the lamb's head as it's being killed. That is, this is a very personal exchange. You're going to feel the life leave the animal. You're going to feel it die for you in your place. What's this all about? Why are we killing animals and collecting blood and throwing it all around? What is this for? Well, it all goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. Remember this? Adam and Eve, they had fellowship with God in the garden, and God would go meet with them at least once a day, so it seems. But they got kicked out of the garden because, of course, Adam sinned, and he was warned about this. God warned him, and he said, on the day you eat of it, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that one forbidden tree, on the day you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. And God was setting up that the consequence for your disobedience to him, the consequence for your sin is death, separation from God, and eventually end of all life. Or Paul puts it this way, the wages of sin is death. So you understand a holy God, a righteous God cannot be in a covenant, cannot be in a relationship, cannot love and be loved by a sinful people, because he's too holy. His holiness just drives all the sin away. Unless, you get this, someone dies. That the blood is paid. That the penalty is met. And that's the whole point of bringing out this ox and putting your hand on it. To say, it's taken my place. I should have died. I was the rebel. I should take the place of death at the altar, but it's going to spill its blood for me. All right, so back to Exodus 24. You see, as the sacrifices are being made, the blood's being collected, and it's being sloshed around. Verse 6, and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood then he threw against the altar. That's before God, saying, a death's happened, a price has been paid. 
The sinner has died. And then, verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, the same blood. And then he declared, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Again, the blood thrown on the altar tells them, tells God, a death has happened. And that same blood pouring out on the people says, and now there's a union, there's atonement, there's that one-ment. A sinful man is reconciled to a holy God. A blood bond has been made. They can have fellowship. The blood of the covenant has brought them together. But that was for the old covenant. The special arrangement that God had with this people Israel. But would it surprise you to hear similar words come from Jesus' mouth? Like at the Last Supper, remember this? He's about to go to the cross. He's creating this memorial about what his death means. And he passes the cup to his disciples and he says this. This is Matthew 26, verse 28. He says, For this is my blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. You see what he's saying? His blood was being spilled for our sins, for our death, that we could be forgiven and reconciled. My blood, he's saying, is being poured out on the cross for the many, the many that will trust in me. They will find forgiveness. They will find full reconciliation. Their sins will be all put away. They will find at one mint with God, but only by my blood. A new covenant is formed, brothers and sisters, and it rests all in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a covenant that we cannot break. It's a covenant that needs no more goats needs no more lambs, needs no more sacrifices because the blood of the eternal Lamb of God paid it all and perpetually and permanently put away all your sin if you trust Him. It's unbreakable. It's unalterable. It's non-negotiable because it's eternal and effective. Speaking of the death of Christ, the author of Hebrews puts it like this. He says in Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single sacrifice, referring to Jesus' death, for by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Past, present, sins of the future. God knows them, but in Christ, he already took care of them. And we glory in this, don't we? I mean, this is the mercy of God. We don't get hell. We don't get consuming fire. We get grace from him. We get we get atonement. But again, we see it here in Exodus. What is atonement about? What is it for? It's not to get you out of hell. It's to get you to God. He wants to know you. That's why he came and died. He wants to be in fellowship with you. That's why he came and spilled his blood. The whole point of the blood is to get you close to him, to enjoy him. That's what covenants are all about. Because you see, even for Israel, that's what they experience next. After the blood is given, what do they get? They get God. So this is our call. In faith, we walk in assurance what Christ has done, and we go to Him for fellowship. We see it here in verses 9 through 11. Let's look at it. 
Exodus 24. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, they went up. And get this, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very clearness for heaven. This is incredible. There are a few places, if any, really in the Bible even like this. Maybe Ezekiel chapter 1, where he has a vision of God, it's like a dream. Similarly, in the book of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. But they're seeing it for real. This isn't a vision. This is history. They're seeing God with their very eyes. Oh, but Rick, I thought if you saw God, you died. And actually, the Lord will tell Moses that very thing in chapter 33, verse 20. But he puts it this way, you will not see God's face. If you do, you would die. And I submit to you here, they don't see his face. What do we hear all about in this description? Verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet. What's the picture? They are so stunned by the glory of God. Where are they? They're on their face. And you know, it's like there's the glowing sun up there. You can't look at it, but you might see the sunbeams. They see the sunlight, but they can't look up and see the sun. It's too glorious. It's too great. But the truly astonishing thing of all of this is verse 11. Even though they're coming so close to the holy God, here's what we read. And so the text makes it explicit for you in case you were already thinking it. Verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Two things. First, the text goes out of its way to tell you that God did not set his hand on them. Why? Because the hand was already set, so to speak, on the lamb, on the sacrifice, on the oxen. He's after fellowship with us now, not judgment. But second, the astonishing end there, they beheld God and ate and drank. Now, what is this about? Here's what it is not. Like this happens in my family. We're getting ready to eat dinner and there's a sunset coming and somebody sees it and we all go run to the front window away from the kitchen table. And then we look at the sunset for like 20 seconds and we're like, that's great. Let's go eat. That's not what's happening here. It's a table of fellowship. It's where you sit long like we do maybe at a Thanksgiving meal and you enjoy one another's company. You reveal something about yourself. They reveal about themselves. There's an exchange. That's what God is doing here with this people. This is fellowship. And that's what the blood is all about, is to make this happen. Now, is that what you want with God? Does that resonate with you? Do you ever delight in fellowship and communion with Him? Or does God seem just kind of boring, distant, uninteresting, or maybe at least just uninvolved and absentee God. We're kind of back where we were. What do we see in this text? If God feels distant, it's not because of Him. It's because of us. Maybe He feels distant because you're harboring sin. You don't want to repent from things because you know God tells you it's wrong. And so you keep yourself away from the church, you keep yourself away from his word, keep yourself away from those kind of really spiritual people who ask you spiritual questions because you don't want to be confronted. Well, realize you're the one running from God, not God running from you. Are you surprised he feels distant? 
Or maybe he feels distant because maybe you're not in the sin anymore, but you just feel so guilty about it. Well, what do we see here? He gave his son so he can, you can know he will have you. He gave his son so you know that blood was enough. He gave his son for him to be your advocate, your righteousness, your sacrifice of atonement. So he says, confess it and just come. That's the whole point. I want to be with you. That's the fellowship that, brothers and sisters, you can have right now. But brothers and sisters, I trust you know that we have that fellowship right now with Christ, the intimacy of peace, that we can have our needs met, we can draw near in prayer with full assurance, but that's not the end of our story with God. Because we will for an eternity be going further up and further into the glories of this Redeemer, such that one day we will not merely be on our faces to see His feet, but because of the cross of Christ being so effective, so strong, so powerful to deal with our sin, He will grab our face and lift it up, and we will look at Him right in the face. This is our hope. as recorded in Revelation 22, the very end of the Bible. It reads, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. What a glory that is. There's not going to be just a throne of some great king but a great king and the throne of the Lamb. And his servants will worship him. Oh, yes, we will. And they will see not his feet, but his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, meaning that one's mine. I'm not ashamed of him. I died for him. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. Why? Because the Lord God will be their light. He will... Make his face to shine upon them is the idea. And they will reign forever and ever. And what will we do? We will proclaim the glories of that blood and his cross. Let's do that now as we pray. Let's pray together. Yes, Lord Jesus, we praise you for you are our redeemer, our reconciler, our sacrifice of atonement. So forgive us for neglecting the fellowship that you have offered. Forgive us for not making full use of the access you've given us to your presence. So, Father, we call upon you by the Spirit that you have sent. Draw us to yourself in faith. Draw us to yourself in focus and in heart and in obedience. And may we so enjoy the peace of the fellowship you've given, that others would see it and we would testify that there is a great Redeemer in whose name alone we pray. Amen.